Now with the virtual world, we're actually able to engage with scientists from different parts of the world and then connect with their networks. There has become sort of broad recognition that we have a responsibility in higher education to provide our PhD students with a broader set of skills and competencies. That can be another way of getting information that you might not know. You're listening to Vitamin PhD, a podcast from Boston University delivering career narratives and know-how to supplement your doctoral studies. Welcome to Vitamin PhD. This episode kicks off a very special series where we will be focused on the core capacities at Boston University. But of course, BU is not the only place that has a framework for thinking about the skills that PhD students might uh, build as they continue their graduate education. My name is Sarah Hokinson, and I'm the Assistant Provost for Professional Development and Postdoctoral Affairs. So I'm very invested in the implementation of our core capacities here and also in thinking about a graduate student skill development more broadly. But I'm here with Daniel Kleiman, who is the Associate Provost for Graduate Affairs, and I wanted to give him the opportunity to introduce this topic with me from the perspective of university leadership. And so, Daniel, thank you very much for being here on the podcast. And I was hoping you could describe a little bit about your job at BU and kind of the job that you hold generally in in the landscape of graduate education. And I think it wouldn't be obvious for students why career and professional development might be a priority for someone like you. So I thought it would be interesting to hear about that from your perspective. Yeah, I'm very happy to, Sarah. So my job at at Boston University, as you mentioned, I'm the Associate Provost for Graduate Affairs, which means I am the senior leader uh, overseeing graduate education at Boston University. That includes everything from the law school uh, to master's degrees to PhDs. And of course, today we're talking about PhD education as the world of higher education has changed, as the job market for professors has uh, declined somewhat, as there has become an increasing realization that PhD people with PhDs can do more than simply become faculty members, there has, I think, become sort of broad recognition uh, that we have a responsibility in higher education to provide our PhD students with a broader set of skills and competencies that will prepare them for a whole array of careers, including uh, those in higher education and on the faculty. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And for me, it's interesting. I wasn't trained in this period of, of thinking about these frameworks. I was trained in a classical STEM apprentices, uh, you know, apprenticeship model where I was supposed to turn out exactly like my mentors turned out in terms of my career pathway. And I struggled in submitting job applications for careers outside of the academy. Initially, nothing was landing. And it wasn't until I translated my cover letter into thinking about a broader set of skills that people started to call me for interviews. And so even before I was introduced to the idea of competency-based education. I guess what I would say is from an employment perspective, from the practical perspective of graduate students getting jobs, I can certainly say, even in my experience 10 years ago, that 
it was far more attractive for people to understand the qualifications and skills that I had rather than the things I did, which I think is a classical way in the academy sometimes of, of representing the milestones in graduate education. But I'm curious, I think as we've rolled out this framework at BU, and I think this probably happens a lot at other places, some programs and departments haven't known what to do with it. They, I think, don't know how to pitch it to their students. And I think maybe even, you know, there's some aspect of, but folks are here to get a PhD in something. So um, shouldn't they be grounded in that disciplinary set of skills? So I'm curious about the tension between whether you call it the apprenticeship model or being grounded in the discipline um, versus this broader framework that encompasses a large set of things and where the balance is from your perspective for graduate students as they think about approaching a framework like this, what's the strategy or, or how, um, how might they continue to honor the particular discipline they've chosen while at the same time um, getting that depth and range of skills? Well, there are a whole host of tensions to begin with. Among them is that it is still the norm and expectation that research universities, research one universities, which is where most of our PhD students in the United States are educated, uh, will produce the next generation of faculty. The faculty who are still training our PhD students are typically not knowledgeable uh, in the kinds of skills one might need to successfully land a job, say if you're a biologist at a pharmaceutical firm, or if you are a biologist at Science Magazine as a writer. Um, they are not skilled in uh, helping social scientists find jobs in nonprofit organizations or uh, humanities PhDs in cultural institutions. So I think that there's, first of all, a long a sort of road of education of our current faculty members about the importance of doing this kind of training, about the importance of providing space for the students in their uh, PhD careers to get this kind of competency. I personally think that our, our faculty need to know more about the world beyond the kinds of jobs that they have. But if they don't, minimally, they need to know, for example, at Boston University, where your office is and what it does. Um, and we want our education to focus on making a life for the next generation of PhDs, that's one they'll be satisfied with, that's one that they will like and grow in. And often that requires developing skills that their advisor isn't prepared to provide them with. As you implied in your uh, discussion of the letters that you started to write, reflection on what the kind of implicit skills you're getting from your advisor are and how those translate into a world beyond higher education. Most definitely. I mean, it's funny for me because you, you learn how to do so much in a PhD that I think you don't capture on a day-to-day -day basis. You are a project manager. You might be a leader in your research group or in your scholarship or in your professional society. 
and all of a sudden you get to the end of it and because everything might have seemed so linear up to that point it takes a while to kind of build out the other data points and other pathways in your career based on how you got there um, because again a lot of the milestones that we have are on this linear line and one of the things that I think is so amazing about professional development is it can help you capture those moments. It sort of forces you to have that reflection or that realization of, oh yeah, there's this thing I do all the time that I never really talk about in group meeting or in my poster presentations, but is absolutely a part of my identity as a biochemist or um, as a social scientist or whatever the discipline of the student might be. One of Boston University's core capacities is about self-awareness. And I think one of the things that we know is that people in life in general who think about what they're doing, who, who plan in advance, who reflect upon their existing experience and how that might shape their future, those people are more successful and more satisfied. So one of the things that it's incumbent upon us to do is provide space, opportunity, and structure for that kind of reflection. And when I give advice to graduate students on where to start, because I think that can be the most overwhelming part if you see this list of things and it can feel like, well, should I take that workshop or this one? Should I read this article or that one? Self-awareness is to me the grounding place um, on which everything else is built. So that is my highest priority one and, and the one I tell everyone to start with. I won't quiz you on the other six, Daniel. I won't put you on the spot. Um, but I will name them here in this conversation because I think we can walk through both why they're important or why we pick them and also just share with some of our listeners some of the things that in our careers have shown up for us that were maybe unexpected but that drew on some of these skills. So the other things that are part of our local framework, and again, this isn't unique to BU, many of our peer institutions have similar frameworks beyond self-awareness or career development. So that competency that's thinking strategically about, again, whether it's a linear line in the academy or whether it's a jungle gym of different opportunities, both in and outside, um, what are those next steps post PhD? Discipline specific knowledge is an integral part. Again, we're not ignoring the fact that folks have entered into graduate programs with a specificity around research and scholarship. Research skills are the underpinning skills that allow that research and scholarship both to take place from an ethical perspective, but also in a way that aligns with the best practices in those disciplines. Management and leadership are two things that I think are different and separate, but also intertwined and have overlaps. And so we um, put them together here at BU. Communication skills, uh, which are all the different ways that we tell folks what we do, why we do it, and why it matters um, in many different formats from PowerPoints and posters to social media and written documents, and even in terms of writing a very good email, which I think is a critical workshop we all have to take. And then finally, teaching skills, which I think are connected to communication skills, but obviously separate and different in terms of the academy um, and even K through 12 education, where at this point, we're not thinking about the student centered being necessarily our PhD student anymore, but in fact, centering their students um, and those that are in their classrooms and how they can convey learning and knowledge to them in an inclusive way. So. Those are the different things that we've highlighted at BU for being critical to our graduate education. And 
Daniel, you and I have had different career pathways and we're in different spaces in our careers as well. And I just thought it would be kind of fun to think about of that long list, what comes up for you either now on a regular basis or maybe one of those skills that has come up for you in your career that you didn't anticipate or that you didn't really think about as a graduate student, but then was very present in your world um, on a day-to-day -day basis. So I have had the good fortune of spending most of my life as a faculty member doing research, teaching undergraduates and graduate students, and honestly, traveling many places across the globe to talk about my work. It, it's, I've been blessed in, in that way. One of the things I thought even early on in my career was that I wanted to be able to communicate the research that I did to audiences beyond my colleagues. Um, and I spent a good long time learning and developing communication skills, you know, and I wrote op-ed pieces and I've, I've tried to write in some of the books that I, I've, I've authored. Um, to, to write in a way that they could be accessible to more than just people in my field. Um, and I think that's actually super important, whatever you do, right? Um, we need more public intellectuals, public scholars, public scientists who are willing to talk about an area of research where they have some expertise in a way to facilitate civic conversation. So that was something that I was committed to early on. But I think just for a second, I'd like to talk about uh, career development, management, and skill leadership. I think so, as I may have said at the beginning, you know, I came of age academically before there was a thought really that people in my field, which is sociology, would go in significant numbers in, into areas outside of the university. Um, and nobody prepared me for that. And basically what I was prepared for was to be a researcher. One of our uh, core capacities uh, is something that I developed early on. Teaching skills, nobody actually really taught me. I had to read on my own and trial and error and, and so forth. But other areas that never crossed my mind, management and leadership, um, you know, I'm going around in my life doing my thing. Sure, I participated or, or undertook my service obligations. I sat on various committees that governed the universities I was at and, and so forth. Um, but I never thought about being an administrator or a university leader. Um, I never reflected on that. I never thought about as in our career development capacity, uh, thinking about what, what it might take to get me there. And one day, somebody came to me and asked whether I would direct an institute where I was at the time at the University of Wisconsin. And my first reaction was, oh my gosh, I don't really have any management skills or any particular leadership skills. Um, and I think in that case, I would have benefited quite early on from different kinds of professional development opportunities. As it happened, there were the occasional, uh, you know, sort of uh, intensive retreats where I developed some management and leadership skills and learned about problems, and those were crucially important. Uh, but without those and without 
a great deal of reflection, um, I never would have succeeded in my first administrative post. And I think what happened after that was that I learned that I really liked this and that there were skills that I could develop, uh, I could hone, I could sharpen. I guess you could say that's how I got where I am today. And for me, some of the same things resonate. One thing that shocked me when I worked in government was how intentional um, the, the British government was in structuring professional development aligned with job descriptions. So we had routine professional development on the different capacities or competencies that we were required to meet on a regular basis. And so once a year, I would go to the UK with other people in my job grade and have leadership training or project management training that was specific to us and in doing our jobs well. And I learned so much from that, but also made a lot of connections back to things that I already knew how to do, but weren't necessarily framed in this new environment. So for me, that was hugely valuable, again, for that translational moment. And I do that a lot now with teaching skills as well, where I'm teaching all the time in workshops, but when I'm presenting in administrative meetings, it's a different form of teaching. It still needs to be learner or audience centered. It, it still needs to create those moments of discovery and excitement about whatever topic that I'm presenting on. And it still needs to be inclusive, but it's no longer a classroom. It's a meeting. It's, it's not necessarily a formal learning environment. And I guess on the theme of things I wish I knew, the one thing I didn't learn in graduate school that I had complete access to was budgeting and financial management. And I would say as a principal investigator, I have had to learn that myself over time working with my grants administrators. And I think if I had understood where some of the funding had come from when I was a funded student in the lab, it might've set me up better for success in managing my own grants. And so I think, we have a section of our project management capacity that's focused on financial management. And one, you know, I would say my own experience drove that, but I think, I hope that graduate students will find that valuable because it's one thing to get a fellowship that covers your stipend or your salary as a postdoc. And it's quite another to have millions of dollars. And I'm very blessed to have millions of dollars. And understand what, you know, this is allocated there, but I didn't spend it all. Where can I move it and why? And how long do I have to spend it? And how does that work? That was not something that I ever asked um, any of my scientific mentors in my PhD or postdoc. And I should have, because both of them, I think would have been able to offer me advice and it's would have been very helpful to where I am now. You know, the, the array of, uh, project management skills that you referred to are clearly valuable for people across careers, right? I mean, if you become a, a, a laboratory leader at a university, you need to have those skills. Um, and if you uh, become a head of a division in a company, you need to have those skills. If you uh, play a significant role in a nonprofit, you need to have those skills. Um, so it is, it, it is almost shocking that we just assumed until relatively recently that people would pick up those skills 
by osmosis in, a, in some way. And I just, before, I, I'm sure you want to get to another question or another uh, discussion item for us, but I wanted just to go back to your observation about teaching. And I think that's also really important. Nobody taught me to teach, which is, it, it, still, it still really shocks me. Um, but one of the things that I would say is that understanding teaching helps one in so many aspects of life. I mean, as you suggested, an administrative meeting. On the one hand, well, you may be trying, if you're making a presentation, trying to convince someone, but it's pretty important that you understand how people learn, for example, how much attention they're likely to have, how people learn differently, because that will affect you, how effective you are, even in making a presentation, right? So really, a lot of what you do in a university leadership position, and presumably in a corporate leadership position or a nonprofit leadership position, is at the intersection of communications, teaching, and uh, project management and leadership. And one of the reasons I shared those examples is I agree with a point that you made earlier around re-educating the faculty around the different aspects of career opportunities for PhD students. But I also think faculty have a lot of these broader sets of skills that they flex all the time in their groups and don't necessarily convey them. And if we can also teach our graduate students to mentor up a bit and ask questions about some of these transferable skills that our faculty even use as part of their roles, even the ones that aren't obvious like teaching or service or, or research, but leadership, management, uh, supervision, I think that could create a lot of really positive mentoring interactions that aren't necessarily hello, PhD student, here is how you get a job in this industry I don't have a job in. But hello, PhD student, here's how I manage the budget. And that's a skill that you can use here as a principal investigator or somewhere else. And hopefully that piece of advice also helps students as they think about how to maximize the mentoring interactions that they have in their graduate programs. I think the other thing that I would simply add is that students should be observant um, because there is, a, a, you know, I, I would say, you know, I, I, as I've said now several times, I remain shocked at the, in a way, the narrowness of the education I received, but I had an awesome advisor and he modeled a lot of things for me. I sat in on his classes. I learned about teaching by watching him teach both undergraduate and graduate students. Um, you know, I, I learned about communication skills from the ways in which he marked up my papers and the ways in which he made arguments about, oh, you're going to the American Sociological Association meeting. You have to think about communicating this way. Your slides need to be this way. And this is why. So um, there is also that, right? If, if you have an observant student and a modestly, um, uh, self-conscious mentor, students develop a lot of these skills. Yeah, and if that modeling isn't present for students, I'm a big proponent of informational interviews and the idea that you can learn a lot by reaching out to someone outside of your research group. And that could be another faculty member at your institution, or it could be someone completely outside of the academy altogether. And that can be another way of getting information that you might not know 
um, to connect back to the professional development associated with any number of these skills. Well, thank you so much, Daniel, for chatting with me today and introducing the core capacities. This special episode kicks off what will be seven seasons of conversations between graduate students and experts in the field around each of these skills and how they are applicable, not just in graduate education, but in different career pathways. I love hosting the podcast, so it was very nice to have a special opportunity but I guess I just wanted to say that I really appreciate being at an institution on, on the cutting edge of, of thinking about how graduate education is structured and our office is really invested in the, the rest of how this set of seasons unfolds and hearing about these skills from the perspective of our graduate student hosts. So thanks for being with me, Daniel. Thank you so much for the opportunity, Sarah. And I'll just say that a lot of that cutting edge comes from you. So thank you. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Vitamin PhD. The first of the core capacity seasons will be released in July with hosts Jessica Wright and Rohan Banerjee focusing on the topic of communication skills. To get the latest episodes of Vitamin PhD, you can follow us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. You can also connect with us on Twitter at BUVitaminPhD. Learn more about our team and send us your feedback by visiting our website, bu.edu slash vitaminphd. See you next time.